We turn this evening to the book of Joshua chapter 9. The book of Joshua chapter 9, as we continue our series through the book of Joshua under the title of Lessons on Spiritual Warfare. I believe we are at number 11 this evening. As we deal with the issue of deception on the part of the enemy. Joshua chapter 9. Let us hear God's breathed out word to us tonight. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How then can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Shihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who live in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey. Go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them. And behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Cherepheth, Beroth, and Kirith-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. The leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, 
And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again ask for God's blessing on it. Shall we pray? Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for once again an opportunity to open a portion of your scripture. We ask your blessing on it this evening, especially be with Pastor Bob as he brings your word, dear Father, as um, we pray for wisdom and discernment in this time. We understand the enemy of our soul is uh, is full of deception, but not our Savior. He is full of truth and grace. And we pray, Father, that uh, you will work in our hearts, especially those, Father, that don't know you this evening or are in the hearing of this word, won't you work in their hearts also that, that they will be changed and a heart of stone will be replaced with a heart of flesh and uh, living for our living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because it is his name alone that we pray. Amen. Amen. So this chapter is about responses. That's the way we're going to look at it. First of all, there's the response of the ites. Just put in parentheses, I-T-E-S, the response of the ites. Secondly, there is the response of Gibeon. Thirdly, there is the response of Joshua. And if you turn the page over, then we'll look at four lessons for us to learn in our spiritual warfare of this day and age as well. So the response of the ites. Now, notice what happens here. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast, all those people, look at the end of verse 1, heard of this. They heard something. They didn't see something. They didn't observe something. They heard something. Now, what is it that they heard? Well, the grammar here would suggest we have to go back to the immediately preceding passage. Some might think, well, they heard of the fall of Jericho. Yes, I'm sure they heard of that too. The fall of Ai, I'm sure they heard of that. But you see, the grammar would say those, if if there's something else between the fall of Jericho and the fall of Ai, that's what we have to look at. Besides, if it's the fall of those cities, if it's the conquest of two cities, would not the passage say, when they heard of these, plural, but it's singular, when they heard of this? Well, where were we last Lord's Day? We were there between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. We were there with the people of God gathered as one people. 
And from the mountain, from evil comes those curses. Those curses that speak about the lifestyle of the people who live in the land. The people who are then listed as the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. When they hear, when they hear what Israel has done, there between those two mountains, they make a plan. When they heard of this, now what is it about that that causes them to do something? I mean, Jericho fell and they don't seem to have done anything. Ai fell, they didn't do anything. But they heard of this worship service, this renewing of the covenant, and all of a sudden, that calls for a response. They've done nothing up to this point. But when they hear what the people of Israel have done, this covenant that they have taken, they suddenly realize, we better do something about these Israelites. Why? Well, I included it just as a snippet last week, Sunday. But remember those curses? I don't want to read back through them again because it's, it's pretty disgusting stuff. What these nations realize is these people, these Israelites, are going to end our way of life. It's going to come to an end. Whether it's our fornicating with animals or whether it's our incestuous living, it's coming to an end. These people have said, cursed be anyone who does this. They're not about to become like us. They're going to change the world. They're going to change the community. They're going to change the place in which they will inhabit. And so they decide they better do something. They respond because of what they have heard. But they heard something else as well. They heard not only the curses, they heard the blessings, but they also heard those people say, Amen. They heard them as the whole entire congregation of Israel. We will do it. And they realize that they're dealing then not just with some sort of physical battle. They're dealing with a spiritual battle. Oh, but the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ today were to but respond in somewhat similar fashion. That when they hear, when they hear of God's people saying, no more, we will not tolerate this any longer. We are going to change our community. We are going to change our county. We're going to change our state. We're going to change our nation. No, we're going to change the world for Jesus Christ. Oh, if, but they could hear 
that the church wasn't willing to compromise with the world? How can we best get along with the world? How can we best somehow work our way in and have views that are similar to the world's views? And how can we somehow, you know, mix in some homosexuality Christianized with the world's view? No. They hear that the church of Jesus Christ is saying, no more. Not here. Not here. And that the church of Jesus Christ stands united in that. That the body of Christ, represented there by those 12 tribes, would unitedly stand and say, we are in this together. When they heard this, the second thing to note about this response of the ites is that this is an interesting group. It's really interesting because these people are natural enemies of one another. These people have been warring against one another. It's not like there's some sort of common pool of, you know, the united ites of Canaan that they all get along somehow and they make some sort of unified decisions. These are people who are at each other's throat. Right? Remember back when we were uh, dealing in, in, was it Iraq or Iran, with Shunis and what's the other group? Thank you. Shiites and Sunnis. Right? And, and we learned, well, aren't you all alike? No, they'll kill each other at the drop of a hat. So with these people, the drop of the hat, they'd kill one another, but not here. Now, it's an interesting collection of folks from all over the southern part of Canaan they have gathered. What is their response? They gather, the text says, as one. Verse 2, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. War and conflict often make very strange bedfellows, right? You read the history of any war, and it's like when you, you find out, well, who's on either side? You go, that's kind of strange. How did they get together, right? When you think about World War II even, right, and who are the allies, don't you kind of go, kind of a strange collection of folks, right? War has a tendency to draw together some pretty strange mixes of folks. But in the spiritual battles of life, Satan is an expert at the gathering as one. Satan is par to none, as it were. In bringing together various factions that you think, how could they ever get along? How could they be united? Well, it's the fact that he's able to unite them against the people of the Lord. And even though they might have hatred to one another, their hatred of the people of God 
is even greater. As I say, Satan is, is, is pretty good at this. And, and we had better give him his due in that regard. He is able to put together some pretty strong coalitions of groups in the spiritual battles that we face in life, even as he does here. Christian unity? Nee, not so much. All right? Christian unity, we'd rather, you know, kind of pick things apart rather than to say, hey, are you united with us about ending abortion? Yeah, well, okay, let's work together. But you see, that kind of thing rarely happens. On the other side, the spiritual forces of evil, they're always cooperating together. They gather together as one. That's the response of the ites. Those who know, those who realize that when you apply God's truth, it's going to end their way of life. It's going to end the lifestyle of hedonism. It's going to end the lifestyle of immorality. It's going to end the lifestyle of death. And they unite as one. Secondly, the response of Gibeon. So now we, we read verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard. See, they're not part of the coalition. They've kind of, they've kind of said, yeah, I don't know about this warfare thing. This warfare thing against the Israelites isn't working out real well. There's a pile of rubble where, Jer where Jericho used to be. And there's a buried king underneath a pile of rocks just at the gate of AI. I think we better come up with another plan. You guys go over there, but we got our own plan. And their plan is an act of cunning. Actually, that's what the text says, right? They, on their part, acted with cunning. What's the cunning? They make something appear that is not true. They make something appear to be true that is not true. How do they do it? Well, the text, we don't have to reread everything, but the text tells us, right? So they take some bread, old bread, and they say, this was fresh when we started. They're close, right? They act with cunning. They're, they're trying to figure out how do we defeat the Israelites without actually doing battle with them? How do we get them to compromise without actually having to defeat them? Because I don't think we're going to do it. I don't think we're going to defeat them. We've heard what they've done. We heard what the Lord has done in Egypt. We heard what he did to the Pharaoh the divine God. We heard what he did to Shihon and Ak. I don't think any coalition of force is going to beat these Israelites, not with their God, but maybe we can trick them. They act with cunning. Reminds you, doesn't it, of that passage back there in Genesis chapter 3, and the serpent was more crafty, right, than any of the creatures God had made. 
Yeah, the, Satan is behind this. There is no doubt. They act with cunning. But boy, they're persistent. They, they got their lines. They know their story. And they're sticking to it. The lies repeated in verse 6. The lie repeated in verse 9. The lie repeated in verse 12. The lie repeated in verse 13. We have come from a long ways. We're not close. Even when the Israelite leaders pause for a moment and stop and think, maybe they're close. How do we know? Oh, no. Oh, no. We're not from close. And they persist in the lie. They pretend to be from a far off country when in actuality they're 20 miles from Gilgal. That's all the distance it is. From Gibeon to Gilgal is 20 miles. Here to, not even quite to Grand Haven. That's all the farther they are away. Yet they've pretended cunningly and through persistent lies to plant the story, the untrue story, that they're from some country way, 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 way. Oh, man, it's journey, 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 journey. I just love the line where they say, we took the bread out fresh out of our ovens, and now look at it. It's all crusty and moldy. It's like, oh, wow, you did? And they believe them. Right? The response of Gibeon is to seek to make peace with Israel, to get Israel to compromise so that their way of life can continue. That's all they want. That's all they want. Just, just let us be. Just, just, just let us do our own thing. We're, we're here in Gibeon. Gibeon, by the way, is in the tribal allotment later on of Benjamin. And it's going to be a pain in the neck the whole time Israel's around. We'll come to that in a minute. Well, let's think about that and ponder that for a few moments. But then let's look at the response of Joshua. What does he do? Well, verse 14 tells, or verse 15 excuse me, it is verse 14, tells us. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. They made it up on their own. They used their human minds. They figure we can sort through this. Look, here is the physical evidence. This must be the truth. Listen to these people. They're telling us so nicely, so politely. They're saying this in such nice tones. We took it out fresh. Now look at it. We don't need to ask God if they're lying or not. We don't need to sort through any of that. They didn't seek the counsel of the Lord. They've got an Urim and Thummim. They've got a high priest. They could go and say, Lord, we're confused. Should we make peace with these people? 
Let's throw the stones. No. They're lying. But they don't. They did not seek the counsel of the Lord. They don't ask. They think they're smart enough. They, they think they know the best way to do this. They think they know how to respond, and they just forge forward. This is the way we're handling it. What does verse 15 tell us they do? And he made a covenant of peace with them. A covenant of peace. And you see, part of what we miss in this, if I ask you the question, should Joshua have made a covenant of peace with them? Your answer would be no. Why? Because you know that they're lying. You know what they have presented is false. You know that Gibeon is only 20 miles from Gilgal. You know they're not on the outskirts of Canaan. They're smack dab in the middle of Canaan. You also know, keep your finger here at Joshua 9. Go back to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. You also know that what they are to do is the following. Verse 29, God says, And I will drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land becomes desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, until I have increased and possessed the land, and I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land in your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. What is the passage, verse 32? You shall make no covenant with them. See, we know that. We know the law. Joshua knows the law. Don't think for a moment that Joshua doesn't know the law. Why? Because what happened in the last chapter? He wrote it on the plaster of those stones, that altar. He had it read to the people, or he himself read it. He knows this law. You shall make no covenant with the people. But he doesn't know that they're people who live within the promised land. He thinks they're outside of the borders of the promised land. Was there a law about that? Oh yeah, there was. Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 20. Book of Deuteronomy chapter 20. I'm going to start reading at verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. 
And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword, but the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything in that city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God. Thus you shall do to all the cities. Now listen. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. In other words, within the borders of the promised land, exterminate. No covenants. Outside of the borders of the promised land, you are free to make peace. Well, have these people have basically come and surrendered? Yeah, they basically came to Joshua and surrendered. We are your servants. We're not going to fight. What was Joshua able to do for those who are far off? The law said that he just wrote in plaster that they just read to the people, said if they're from far off and they surrender, let them surrender. That's okay to do. So if you look at it and say, is Joshua following the law? Well, his understanding of the law, yes. Because he thinks this group is one of those far off city people. Therefore, the law said he could make peace. By the way, this covenant that Joshua makes that we read in the rest of the chapter, the people of Israel are ticked. They're, they're upset. What are you doing? What are you leaders doing? Let's go over there. They march for three days, come to the city. Joshua says, whoa, 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 we're not killing these folks. We made a covenant, a binding agreement. We cannot kill them. Later on, there's going to be a king by the name of Saul. Saul is going to go at the Gibeonites. They live in his tribal allotment. And for whatever reason, Saul gets it in his head, I'm going to get rid of these Gibeonites. And he does so. He kills many of them. It all kind of sits there until you come almost to the end of Samuel, 2 Samuel, and the reign of David. And all of a sudden, they're dealing with this problem. They've got a three-year famine going on. And they inquire, why is there a famine? It's because of what Saul did to the Gibeonites. He broke the covenant that Joshua made. And it results in, in David having to find, going to the Gibeonites and say, what do you want? How do we make this right? And they say, we want seven of Saul's descendants. So he's really got to scrape the bottom of the barrel because most of Saul's descendants are already gone and are already dead. But he finds some, some concubines, kids, and so on. He hands them over to the Gibeonites. They kill them. They crucify them, it sounds like, hang them from trees, whatever. And they're killed. 
And that, of course, responds in the story of Rizpah, who is there protecting her sons. David so admires what she has done to protect her sons, he realizes, I never buried Saul and Jonathan. Goes, gets their bones, buries their bones, gives them a proper burial, and it rains. So this, this story, what Joshua does here, has long generations lasting effects but he does so he he makes the covenant of peace did you catch the line verse 16 at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them they heard they were neighbors and lived amongst them it's interesting if you go back through this chapter just just follow the word heard Everybody's hearing stuff. Now Joshua hears. He finds out we were tricked. We were duped. We were lied to. And he tell us the truth. He realizes his error. He realizes what he has done is wrong. But two wrongs do not make a right. He was wrong to do so. But now to go and exterminate them anyway? No, that's not right. He recognizes the error. He recognizes their failure. He recognizes how easily they were misled by the enemy. But he does do something. He does Make them servants. You might say, could he do that? Yeah. Why? Because that's what they agreed to. Remember that little line when they first came? We are your servants. Joshua says, yes, you are. By your own mouths, by your own testimony. You came, you surrendered, you said you'd be our servants. That's what we're now going to make you. You will become our servants. But not just, see, there, there's part of this that, that is not, so we're going to profit out of that mistake? No, no. We're, we're going to hand them over to the priests. We're going to hand them over to the Levites. They're going to work for the temple of the Lord. They're not going to work for us. We will not profit from our own error. They can serve the Lord. And that's what he does. Now, if we were to ask Joshua at the end of chapter 9, say, Joshua, what did you learn from this? <laughs> what did you learn from this encounter with the Gibeonites? Or maybe we should ask ourselves, what do we learn from this? Now, there's a lot of things, but let me highlight it with four. In our spiritual battles, that we face, whether as individuals, whether as families, whether as the church or individual churches. I think one lesson that comes out of this very clearly is this. We need to be seeking the Lord. Whenever we rest upon our own ideas, our own thoughts, we end up in horrible mistakes. Grievous, 
mistakes that can last for generations to undo. We need to be seeking the Lord. I know we live in this information age. Seeking the Lord doesn't mean let's dig deeper into the internet, let's dig deeper into stuff and see if we can find more information. Seeking the Lord means this. Studying this. And prayer. That's what we need more of. Right? I mean, I, I think we all understand that, don't we, individually? That, that when we try to deal with something on our own, some temptation, some sin, that Satan places before us, some spiritual battle, when we try to do it on our own, what often happens more than that? We fail. We mess up. Why? Because we tried to deal with it in our own minds. We tried to deal with it in our own strength. Rather than seeking the Lord. See, it's not just reading the latest blog and saying, this is the way we deal with it. No, we, we go to the Lord. What does the Lord say we should do? How does the Lord say we should handle this? Nor do we say, well, everybody's got a mind of their own. They all can figure out what to do. We go to the Lord. This is what, we, this is what they failed to do. They did not take counsel with the Lord. How do you take counsel? This is his word. This is his guide. This is his truth. And he invites us to pray. Secondly, the enemy deceives. Yeah, imagine that. The enemy of the church of Jesus Christ lies. The enemy of the church of Jesus Christ does not tell the truth. The enemies of the church hate the church. They hate you. They hate me. And they lie. They deceive. And they're good at it. They're cunning. And they practice it. They know better their lies than we know the truth. That's the problem. They practice the lie so much they believe the lie is the truth. We so seldom consult the truth, we think it's the lie. And that the world is telling us the truth. You need to remember from this story. The enemy doesn't always just, okay, let's go and fight. We're opposed to you. You're opposed to us. Let's have it out. Let's battle. Come on, let's go. Now, sometimes they're cunning. Sometimes Satan and those spiritual forces of evil twist and distort. Thirdly, don't be surprised at the gathered forces. Don't be surprised at those who do not want the church of Jesus Christ to take a stand. Don't be surprised. 
at the people who will flee. Let me give you an example. What do you think would actually happen if the Church of Jesus Christ unitedly said, no more abortion? It's not happening. We make one statement together. You know what would happen? Those people we've elected who we think are right to life would flee to the other side as quicker than you can blink an eye. Oh, no, we're not going there. Oh, no, we're not. No, 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 no. My political career is on the line here. Oh, no, no, no. There's too much money over here. And suddenly, those who we thought might be friends are going to be running to the other side. And every issue that we come upon, you're going to see it over and over and over again. There will be denominations that say, oh no, we're not going to go there. No, no. And we think, well, we thought that you guys were pretty on par. We thought you guys were pretty solid. Oh, no, 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 we're not going to do that. No ultimatums like that. No, we got to leave it up to everybody's decision. Really? Is that what Joshua is doing here as he fights this spiritual battle? Don't be surprised at the gathered forces. And then fourthly, I think there is a lesson here to keep our vows. We've made vows to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've made vows in in regards to how we will conduct ourselves. We made vows that we will serve the Lord. That he will be our master. That he will be our ruler. Not our passions. Not our anger. He will. We're going to listen to the word. We're going to keep our vows. Whether it's our vows of profession of faith. Whether it's our vows of marriage. Whether it's our vows of baptism. We are going to keep our vows. As hard and as difficult as it may be. In our own personal struggles with sin, we're going to keep our vows. We're going to follow the Lord. And we're going to serve but one king. We're going to serve but one master. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you. What a reminder out of this Old Testament passage. It's like bringing it into the world today. This is, this is where we're at. Help us to seek you. Help us to keep our vows. Help us to be alert. And help us to be prepared. And help us to be unified in our fight individually, personally, with our own struggles, in our own families, in our own congregation, in our denomination, but even more so as the church of Jesus Christ. May we seek you because of your love and mercy and grace to us. In Christ's victorious name we pray. God's people say... Amen.